All right, everybody, welcome to tonight's class. My God, Defining the Divine. We will be um, exploring this week, the first, just to give a quick recap, the first two weeks we are exploring um, about God. Week number three, we're just, ex just like figuring out who God is. Week number three, we are trying to understand more about God, his reasons why he operates in certain ways. Last week, we discussed more of our relationship. What are God's expectations for us? And this week will be more purely philosophical. We'll be discussing his paradoxes. Those who have the book, we are going to be, um, we are lesson five. And that would be on page 142. So um, we'll be discussing these paradoxes. So I'll just give you a few of them just to start off. Would be number one would be, can God create a stone that he can't lift? Number two would be, does God's foreknowledge preclude our free choice? Number question number three is going to be, is there anything that God finds difficult to do? Question number four, if God has decided to do something, can we change his mind? So let's see um, what, how we can answer these questions. So let's start with question one. Can God create a rock he can't lift? So this is kind of an oxymoron. So speaking of oxymorons and logic, I have, uh, there's a story. One time there's little Joey, he was playing catch outside. And after a few minutes, he knocks on the neighbor's door, tells the neighbor, you know, I think my baseball is in your garage. So the neighbor, the gracious neighbor goes to the garage and sees that the baseball is sitting there and there is a hole in the window. So little Joey looks up to the, to the woman and says, Oh, wow, I must have thrown my baseball directly through that hole. I guess strike one. All right. Um, you are now paired. Enjoy. All right, let's begin. There is, um, concerning our question, can God create a stone he can't lift? Um, there's actually many different two different ways to look at it. There is um, the creation-related way of viewing this, which would be questions like this. Examples of a creation question would be, is can God create a, an elephant, can God pass an elephant through the eye of a needle without making the elephant smaller or the needle bigger? Another question would be, can God have me go north and, north and south at the same time? Can a person be board a train and remain on the platform at the same time? Can two plus two equal five? These are all questions which logically make no sense. And the last one would be, can God create a stone? Sorry, yeah. Then these are all questions that make no sense, right? They, they're all oxymorons. Two plus two can never equal five, no matter how many times you do it. And so to all the rest. Same thing, those will be the... Um, the God, that's a creation-related question. Now, God-related questions would be, can God limit himself and still be infinite? Can God rep replicate himself and still be one? And last but not least, can God create a stone he can't lift, right? That's, uh, these are all oxymoron questions. So now, 
they kind of make no sense. So what are we going to do about it? So we're going to, I'm just going to give a brief introduction. There's going to be three answers to this question. There's going to oh, be your mic is kind of, your mic is a little bit muted, it seems. My mic's muted? It kind of goes back and forth between normal and just kind of soft. What about now? What? Now better? No, it's, I mean, we can hear you. It's just not as clear as it was before. One second. Then select speaker digital output. Yeah, the louder, the better for us. <laughs> what about now? Is this better? Slightly. Maybe I'll have to bring that's better. My... That's, that's, that's better. That's better. Yeah, no, I usually do. That shouldn't be the issue. All right. Um, hopefully, hopefully um, this does well. So the God-related question would be, right, can we, can God create um, a stone he cannot lift? Oh, sorry, we did that already. All right. So the rational response. So there's be three answers to this question. Be number one will be the rational response. Um, the rational response would be there was a time that the Jewish people were um, the Jewish people, this is in the Middle Ages, that Jews had questions and therefore they were turning to Greek philosophy to answer the question about God. There's like Aristotle speaks about God. There's different example. There's different um, Greek philosophers that would focus on God and speak about God. And as a result of that, to counter that, because their conclusions are, were not necessarily aligned with the Torah, Rabbis in the Middle Ages, starting for Rabbi Sadia Gaon, we spoke about him, I think, in the first class. We brought, we mentioned him. So rabbis started making books called Chakira books, which these are books which discuss in a, discuss in a um, intellectual level certain paradoxes about God, questions about God, totally on a rational level. Um, and... Jews got very used to this. Um, the Kabbalistic understanding really wasn't around because the Zohar, which is the beginning of Ka Kabbalah, was actually found in the late 1100s. It was discovered. It was written. It was written in the times of the Second Temple, but then it was buried, and they found it in the 1100s. So till this period, it was really not widespread. Certain people had access to the ideas, like Maimonides. He had access to the ideas. But because it wasn't officially discovered, Maimonides never was able, he never shared any of these ideas publicly as Kabbalistic ideas. That, therefore, the rational response we're going to get from Maimonides. So Maimonides won't disagree with the Kabbalistic response, but he didn't write Kabbalistic, he, wouldn't, he has no Kabbalistic teachings because um, it wasn't widespread. Only the leaders of the generation knew Kabbalistic teachings. Um, that being said, um, I want to also bring another preface that Torah actually is split up into four levels. That would be pshat, remez, drush, so. Those are the Hebrew words. In English, that would be pshat would be the base level, the surface level of understanding. When you learn Torah, you there is, if those are familiar, when you're learning the Chumash, there will be a commentary called Rashi. Rashi explains the surface level of how to understand that. Then there's Remes. Remes kind of is looking, for, goes beneath the, the crux of it all. And it's trying to bring out what ideas can be, 
hinted and alluded throughout through the Torah. Let's say you learn, says God created the heaven and the earth. So what do we learn from that? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What do we learn from that? So we're actually, there is there's other stuff which are hinted out, which is like a bill beneath the surface. Then there's drush. You have, I'm sure those are, everyone's familiar with the midrash. The midrash is just the, all the lofty explanations and understandings of the Torah, more of a, how to live our life and apply it. That is the drush of Torah. Then there is sod. Sod would be Kabbalah, Kabbalah, Kabbalistic teachings. So in the Middle Ages, Jews knew there are these four levels, but they had no access to the fourth level. So actually this rational Chakira, which we're talking about, many Jews felt that is the fourth level until the, the Kabbalah um, was discovered. And then Jews understood what that is. Now there is really a fifth level in Torah. That would be Hasidic teachings. It's not really a fifth level because Hasidic teachings are not any specific level of Torah. A Hasidic teaching could, it actually permeates the whole Torah. So a Hasidic teaching could tie it all together. It's kind of the bread and butter of Torah. So if you have a Hasidic teaching, it could be very surface level. We do a lot of Hasidic teachings, a very surface level. And it also be very Kabbalistic. So our third answer to this question would actually be a Hasidic response, kind of threading the needle between the rational response and the Kabbalistic response. Um, and I'm just gonna right now say that after this course is done, so in, Jan in the end of January, we're starting our next course, we're actually gonna be going through all the different levels of Torah. It's gonna be very interesting. I'll speak more about it next week um, in the end of the lesson. All right, so let's start off with the rational response to can God create a stone he can't lift? So the rational response would be that God is omnipotent, so God could do anything. But that being said, what does that mean that God could do everything? God, so here's, here's the answer. God could revive the dead. You know what else God could do? God could make the sun rise in the west and set in the east god could split a sea split the red sea god can make bread fall from the sky god can make all these things happen god can make a man fly god can make a any any miracles god could do because these are all things that are physically impossible and god is beyond physicality so god could god permeates physicality and he could do what he wants but then God created the world within the realm of logic. And since he's in within the realm of logic, therefore, God cannot break through the realm of logic. And something that's illogical is impossible. Right? So now, two plus two can never equal five. And so in the realm, within the realm of logic, that's not possible. So no matter how much, if God would come here and try to point to the, the rational the rationalist view, if God would come over to us and he would explain to us how two plus two equals five, we still it would still want to make sense because two plus two can't equal five on a rational level. On an intellectual level, it can't equal five. And because, as we spoke about in earlier classes, God gave us a brain. We're supposed to use our brain. Two plus two can't equal five. I cannot be on a train and on the platform at the same time. I can't be at two places at once. That's not possible. It's not possible for an elephant to go through a needle without making the needle bigger or the elephant smaller. These are all stuff which are logically impossible. And therefore, 
within this realm, God can't do it. So let's see how Maimonides put this. Maimonides says something very interesting. Maimonides says in text one, the inability to accomplish something that is beyond one's sphere does not constitute imperfection. We should not call someone weak if they are unable to lift a thousand talents. A talent is about a ton. That's a thousand tons. So two, we do not consider God to be imperfect because he can't transform himself into a body. Yeah, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. If I tell Arnold Schwarzenegger, listen up. I don't know any other bodybuilders. If anyone has anyone better, we're going to stick with Arnold Schwarzenegger. If I tell him, listen up, Arnold, I want you to lift the Empire State Building. And he can't do it. He's not King Kong. He can't do it. So he's so um, that doesn't mean he's weak. That doesn't mean he's weak. That just means that that's like beyond the realm of possibility. So calling God omnipotent is only within the realm of possibility. But once it's not, it's beyond that. It's not logical. We can't expect God to be able to do that. In our world, it's God created logic. We can't expect God to be able to do that. So that is the mystical. That would be the rational response. So now let's go to the mystical response. The mystical response is like this. Now, you know what? God created logic. So God cannot be held prisoner to logic. So two plus two can equal five. And all these things could happen. I, they're not logical to happen. So we can't expect God to need to use logic. That would be creating God in our own image. Remember the first week we said that we have to stop creating God in our own image. That would be creating God in our own image. There is no logical way to explain it, but God's not logical. God created logic. So in general, God operates within logic. But if God chooses not to, that's at his discretion. Let me give you an example. Let's say a parent makes a board game, right? So they invent a board game and they make rules. And then, you know, while the parent is within the game, they have to keep to the rules. But if the parent, let's say the rules aren't working, the parent could get up for saying, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to change the rules a bit. So God made a world. It has logic. And God operates within logic. But that's just God's discretion. God's not, doesn't need to do so. He chooses to do so. So let's see, let's see this in, um, there's a, this is one of the first rabbis after the revelation of Kabbalah. So he brings this out very nicely. And he says like this, it is clear that beliefs that we have to, that, that we have that are rooted in our tradition and those that are sourced in prophetic revelation cannot be falsified by logic. The truth is that no one would deny a truth that is accepted on faith unless, unless he was of those who deny the possibility of anything that is naturally or physically impossible. Those who say that the impossible is impossible even for God, it is as if they assert that nothing transcends their own logic. 
But the truth is that the transcendent God oversees natural law. He can and does change it on occasion, for he is its master to preserve it and to change it. So the, as we, so we see from here, the Kabbalistic idea is that God created logic, so he's not its prisoner, and therefore God can do what he wants. These are two opposite views. Then comes the Hasidic approach. And the Hasidic approach is going to say, both are correct. So how do these both come together? So let me explain. We've explained earlier, we've explained earlier that um, one second, Randy, someone is here for the class. We've explained earlier that God is that God is transcends the worlds, right? But we also God chooses to operate within the sphere of our universe, within our world. And therefore, um, we kind of have two levels of God going on. We have God the way he chooses to relate to us. And then we have the way God is not relatable to us, the way God is on his own. So that would be that would be like this. So the way we bring this out is God inherently he is God is inherently he's he's not understandable. He's not constrained to logic or anything. But God chooses to operate. God chooses to operate within the realm of understanding, within the realm of nature, and therefore. We that's how that, that since that's the way God operates, therefore, within our world, that is how it is. So, therefore, the rationalists say that God, that lot, something has to be logical within our world. That's true. But then we have to, on the other hand, um, on the other hand, the way God doesn't relate to the world, the way God's unrelatable to us, then God doesn't even be logical. So, but, so now I want to bring two examples of this in the world. So we said earlier, we said earlier that um, this idea that God could operate beyond logic is in two ways. We would see it in as it relates to God and as it relates to creation. So let me, let's first talk about how it relates to creation. So right here we have the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was 20 cubits, which a cubit is a foot and a half. But let's just stick to cubits. It's a more rounded off number. You could, if you want, if it's easier, it's 20 feet. It is 20 cubits wide. Now over here we have the Ark. The Ark, the measurement of the Ark was, it was a, it was a, um, foot and a half wide, I mean a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half tall, and two and a half cubits long. So it took up two and a half cubits. So within the space of, it was in the dead center of the Holy of Holies. 
So within that space, you have two and a half missing. So there should be 10 minus, it'll be 8.75 cubits on one end, 8.75 on the other. And then that's how it'd be, right? And then the middle, you have the, two, the, the space it takes. But if you brought a measuring tape into the Holy of Holies, it would measure like this. You would have 10 cubits on either side. The space of the ark didn't take up any space. You're able to feel it. You're able to touch it. And when you measure like this, it would make no sense. But this is how it would look. So over here, we see this is completely logically impossible. But God had this operate within creation, even though. And then we have another example. That would be with God himself. Right? That would be an example of God himself. What would be that example? That would be an example of us. There's actually 8 billion rocks in the world that God can't lift. Let's see one second. There's actually 8 billion rocks in the world that, can't, that God can't lift. Can't? Can't. That would be every single one of us. Every single one of us is a rock that God can't lift. Why? Because God gave us free choice. And God, because we have free choice, God, he chooses not to be able to lift the rock. He granted us, it says, that everything is within God's control. God controls everything up until the smallest detail of the world. But God cannot control human beings. We get to, we are controlled. We control ourselves. So we are, we have this infinite power. This comes from God himself. This is the spark of God in our neshama, in our soul which we have, which gives us this opportunity. And therefore, we are able to operate on our own. And through this, we could break through the greatest of barriers, making our own choices. And this is a gift that God gave us that he does not control us. So let's watch a video how, um, a, about a teaching of the Rebbe about this. Other the sounds not coming through. There's no sound. Sorry, let me do that over. The park attendant steps away from the gates. The Hasidim arrive. Nineteen fifty six Rosh Hashanah. 
the Toshlich ceremony, where we cast away the burdensome sins of the past year, is performed beside a body of water. For years, the Lubavitcher Rebbe would embark on a one-mile walk to the lake in the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, an entourage of dancing Hasidim at his side. But this year, there is an autumn downpour. The Brooklyn streets are empty. Undeterred, the Rebbe walks into the storm. The march goes on. Meanwhile at the gardens, anticipating no visitors in the midst of the storm, the park attendant steps away from the gates. The Hasidim arrive at the park to find the gates locked, leaving the drenched Hasidim stranded in the rain. Swiftly, the Rebbe begins to scale the eight-foot metal barricade. He reaches the top, leans over, and descends on the other side, and then he beckons to the drenched Hasidim, as if to say, join me. All the Hasidim, young and old, strong and frail, climb over the wall. The prayer is recited, and the Rebbe begins to sing. The assembled break into joyous dance. The Hasidim return in the rain. Their fedoras drip with dissolved ink, staining their holiday clothes. Back in the warm confines of 770, the Rebbe pours wine for all those who had scaled the barricade. There is joy and exhilaration, because the Rebbe has revealed something in those who had joined the daring expedition. No wall can stand between a Jew and their desire to become close to God. You will never know the things you are capable of, the limitless nature of your soul, until you begin to climb. Because in every mortal body beats an immortal peace of God. You are as limitless as the God who resides within you. All right. So what do we learn from that video? We see that we have a piece of God within us. And therefore, and therefore um, that piece of God is what makes us limited, limitless and makes us be able to surpass our own what's our own logically impossible and that comes the byproduct that that's our free our free choice which the byproduct that would be our free choice which would excuse me your voice um, is not coming clear the voice is not coming clear it's not being a good uh it's not as before what about now better thank you um, so that would be our free, that would be our free choice. And that's the byproduct of this piece of God we get within us. So just to sum up everything, can God create a, a rock he can't lift? Nothing is impossible for God, but God chooses to be within the confines of our understanding and our, pos in the, within our own, um, confines of logic. And therefore we are able to, um, and therefore, in the realm of logic, God won't do such a thing. All right, you're getting a lot of feedback. There's a lot of feedback when you sleep. People want to turn off their phones. Okay, I'm going to put on ear pods. That's good. That's good. And hopefully that works. I don't know why it's being. Um... And let's try to everyone mute in this way. We could. Um... 
All right. Um, from the Zoom crowd, is there any questions? Zoom crowd. All right, you guys hear me? Yeah, I hear you. All right, good. Okay, um, it's, it's, right. Bad. David, it's bad again. It's bad again. I don't know what this is. So weird. What about now? We can hear you. It's just not very clear. It's not like it was before you started playing the video. Is this one better? Yep. yep. This is good now? Yep. yep. All right. Just keep me posted. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, anyone in the Zoom crowd have any questions or no? Okay, in the live audience, questions. Yes. What is the world metaphysical or was it an actual world? It's a real world. So, by him hopping over the wall at his age in a point storm, it told the disciples to get uh, nothing will slow you down and nothing will stop you but if you take the chance to go over the wall. Yeah. If you don't take the chance to go over the wall, uh, you're aggravated, disappointed, and upset and cold because you're staying in the cold rain. I mean, they were, yeah, I mean, they were staying in the cold rain anyhow, but it was all about going beyond what's, you know, logic tells you not, to, it's locked, let's go home. But when you go beyond that, you, like for the mitzvah, we're going to go beyond that. Wasn't that the same mitzvah of a young man like me who lives in Granada Hills, which is way the hell over there, to come and do a mitzvah to get into the car from down here to uh, get to know Asia? Yeah. That in itself is going into the wall. That is correct. All right. Next question. Do we... Do does God's foreknowledge preclude our free speech? Sorry, our free not free cheese speech, free choice. All right. Um, so let's begin. So seemingly, seemingly that the answer to this would sound like, you know, it's it's a good question, right? That one second, let me get rid of it. So First of all, I want to bring out that it's a. Um, first of all, I want to bring out that it is obviously we've spoken about it a lot. Speaking of free choice, we just spoke about it earlier. Free choice is a fundamental of Judaism. Like we see right away, it says in Deuteronomy, "See that I set before you today life and good, death and evil. I call today upon heaven and earth to serve as witness that I have informed you." I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, choose life. So we see that it's a fundamental of Judaism, just to um, 
free choice. But then on the other hand, we have this question, God knows everything that's going to go on, going on. And therefore, since God knows what is everything that's going to happen, is that really free choice? You have free choice to do whatever you want to do, but I know what you're going to do, right? So um, that's kind of not that's kind of not free choice. So that's kind of a paradox. Oh. It's still free choice so, for the human being. Um, here, so let me let me explain it, and if anyone has any questions, we'll speak. So. Let me explain. You have, there is actually a Kabbalist. His name was Rabbi Moshe Almosin Almos Almosinino. So he actually explains this idea at length. I'm going to read part of it. All right, so here, here we go. Um, he says like this, he says, here's an analogy that will clarify the matter. Suppose I see Reuben while he is currently running. His running isn't compelled by my knowledge and observation. For his running, although my knowledge is absolute, his running is by choice. The same applies to divine knowledge Divine knowledge, God's foreknowledge of our choices doesn't compel our choices because God transcends time and our future is but his present. Just as our knowledge of current events doesn't compel those events, so does his knowledge of our future choices not compel our. So he says something very interesting. He said he'll say something like this. He'll say. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but it seems like uh, there's a background noise. There's an echo. I don't know what is exactly going on tonight, but it doesn't. I'm hearing it also. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. Can is everyone muted? Let's try to all stay muted, and then. All right. Um. Sorry about that. So. He says something very interesting. He says is that our that our um, God's knowledge of what's going to happen is as if he, well, God is in a time machine. So let's say you're in a time machine and you go 20 years into the future and you see your state of life and everything. Will you, those choices you made until then not have happened? Of course they happened, but you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. It doesn't make the choice not a choice. God is above time. So God knows what's going to happen, but we still get to choose. Just God's future, our future is God's present. So God knows what we chose already before we chose it, but we still have that free choice. And I want to bring this out in an analogy. So I'm going to ask Randy, you able to come here for a minute? Yeah. I want you, I want you to ask, you're going to ask me this, this question number one. My wife is in the crowd. We're going to ask, I want to show this, this question over here. The two, you, the two of you are driving to an event and you're running a bit late. You're a bit anxious. You're going 15, 20 miles per hour over the speed limit 
how will your wife react? So she'll probably kind of like tense up and be like, dub it, dub it, slow down, slow down. That's usually how it goes. This is um, <laughs> um, a sometimes an occurrence that happens. Hannah, any comment? Say it again. Any comment? Is that is that what you would do? I missed I missed what um was that Randy said. You oh you want me to say it again? Yeah, please. Yes, yeah, it again. By the way, did you get that package I left for you? <laughs> the card package. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, it was down on the floor in the garage, so I brought it up and dropped it off your front door. All right. Oh, thank the, you. Okay. The two of you are driving to an event, and you're running a bit late. You're a bit anxious, and you're, and you're going 15 to 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. How are you, the wife, going to react? So, Hannah, I said you're going to tense up and tell me to slow down. Is that correct? Yes. All right, now Randy, one more. I want you to ask. I want you to ask her this question. Okay, and then this is for you. You send Dubin grocery shopping and give him a list of items to buy. What will he come home with? A, everything on the list. B, Everything on the list, plus a few other things that caught his eye. C, he'll miss out getting a few things on the list. D, he'll come home with a few items that he's not sure exactly how they got into the shopping cart. Um, I would say David would go shopping. I'd give him a list. He would buy almost everything, plus a few more that catches his eye. All right, so that's the exercise. So now pretty spot on. Um, I'm also thinking maybe giving feedback if that's something you would open. Um So basically, it's going the way it would be is like this. So now my wife knew what I would do technically. I know what my wife would do technically, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it's going to that's compels me to do that, right? Just it could be my wife one day I'll be speeding and she'll be like, "Dub it, go faster." And there could be one time I'll go grocery shopping and I'll get only the stuff on the list and that's it. Those are both possibilities. Just because my wife knows what's probably going to happen, still it doesn't mean that is what is going to happen. Um, so the same thing is with God. Just because God knows what we are going to do, still that doesn't compel us to operate within that way. 
So just to summarize, does God have does God's foreknowledge preclude our free choice? It would be that God's foreknowledge is not the cause of our choice, but rather it's the outcome of our choice. Just like if I throw up a rock and I know it's going to fall down, the fact I know it's going to fall down doesn't make it fall down. The fact I know it fall down, it's going to fall down, just is right. It's going to fall down. So the same thing is with free choice that. God knows what we're going to do, but doesn't compel us to do it. He knows because that's what we chose already. Are there any questions? On Zoom, any questions? Sally, you're muted. Sally, you had a question because you're, you're on mute. I can't hear you. Oh, there you are. No, I'm saying God would be very busy if we had to worry and know ahead of everything we do. That's a very big order. Um, if we have free will, I would see it like we have possibilities and we make the final decision, but you're saying it's preordained, basically, that God already knows what we're going to decide. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, is that like, right? I'm saying God knows. What, yeah. What I'm saying is God knows what we're going to decide because oh, he knows what happened already. God is kind of in a time Pardon machine. Me? God is kind of in a time machine, right? So God knows the future. But those are the choices we are going to make. God knows already. Because God's beyond time. So he sees and one sight God can see from the beginning till the end of time. It's not something we're able to understand. Because it's beyond the realm of understanding. But then that's God's foreknowledge. But that doesn't mean we're not choosing. It just means that God is watching the movie that he already watched constantly. Knows I had it. What? In other words, God didn't make the movie, but God knows <laughs> That's constantly. That's a big order. Um, yeah. God is a very busy uh, man. <laughs> if God were a man, he'd be very busy. <laughs> God is a very busy thing, uh, entity. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that. All right. Question. Yeah, question. So for just for a distinction, so you're saying... It's like a computer is deterministic. You have an oracle that programs the computer. So you can you have algorithms that have a deterministic that play out. Yeah. So the difference is everything has already been done from the, on this timeline. So it's already there, but it includes our free choice. So he sees what our free choice was. He doesn't tell us what we're going to do, but the free choice was there. He just is observing it. Yeah, it's not like he preordained. It's not preordained. It's not preordained. Yeah, that's what that's what I was saying. That it's yeah. God's God is constant. God is constantly watching the movie that yeah. we are that we made. Yeah, that we made the movie. God's constantly watching it, and He already knows. So, from the second 
it's God is every single moment watching the whole movie over and over and over again. So my question is, why isn't God bored? No, I'm kidding. Um, so he, God knows what's going to happen. Why would God ever be bored with us? We should be excited and fascinated with what we do. It's the same analysis, analysis because I work in it. Uh, algorithm. It's the same thing as you playing chess with another individual, but you have no idea the, the, the guy's chess master. He's been playing for years. But your analogy is kind of off. Because if I'm playing somebody else, Bob, is it's already predetermined that I'm going to win and he's going to lose every time we play the game. It's not predetermined, but that's not. I didn't say it's predetermined. I said God just already knows because he imagine you watch the game already and then you watch the game before it happens. You had a, a vision what the going to be and then you see everything playing out step by step. So it's not preordained, but you already know what's going to happen. It's like going to a time machine. All well, right. The difference is it's already been done. The history is already there. Right? You can see the whole history, but he doesn't choose it. Yeah. All right. So, so then we choose it for ourselves. Yeah. Okay. We're running short on time. I know it's like only halfway through, but I want to I wanna keep on moving and we'll do discussion after the class. We'll continue the discussion. All right. All right. Um, so is there anything that God finds difficult to do? So the basic answer you're going to think is, I mean, we obviously know there's nothing difficult for God to do. God is omnipotent. Nothing should be difficult for God. Um, like it says, actually, in Psalms, um, that God created the world with the word of his mouth. Just by speaking, the whole thing is created. Um, so, yeah, so let's like, if it's just all talking, everything's created by speech. It's not very difficult. Me, I need a, if I want to build um, a piece of furniture, I can't say furniture get built. I actually have to work for a few hours. So the question is, so that's, I mean, not a question. So we see everything is easy for God. But then we see that there are some exceptions, that stuff aren't in Talmud. It gives examples of stuff which are not easy for God. It would be like this, for instance. Um, here are some exceptions. Number one, splitting the sea. It says that it says the splitting the sea is hard. How do I know, know how do I know splitting the sea was hard for God? Because there's a different passage in the Talmud that Talmud says like this that it says that finding your bashert, finding your shuddah, your spouse is Hard like splitting the sea. So I know splitting the sea is hard for God. The splitting of the sea, when the when the, we, the Jews went through the Red Sea, this was something difficult for God. And then there's another passage in the Talmud. It says, how do we know that getting a livelihood, that making a livelihood is hard like splitting the sea? And it says because it puts them right next to each other. In the verse in Psalms, it says that, that God gives God gives bread to all, all beings and right away finishes off and says, and he splits the sea into, he split the sea into grooves in, for the Jews to pass through. So we, it says, the Talmud says, what does this mean? It connects them. It means that earning a livelihood is very hard, is hard for God making us earn a livelihood is very hard, like splitting the sea. So we see there's three things that are hard for God to do. Number one, splitting the Red Sea. Number two, 
finding us on proper match. Number three, for us to make a livelihood. So now, let's try to understand why, let's, we have to understand this. Why are these things hard for God to do? So we're going to start off by explaining what is so hard about splitting the seed. So the answer to this is like this. There's a very, very interesting Zohar. This is, um, it's a Midrashic, um, it's a Midrashic idea, which is found in the Zohar. It goes as follows. When God wishes to do something, all before him is as not, and nothing can stand in his way. Yet, you say that splitting the sea was difficult. So how could that be? When God desired to split the sea for the Jewish people, Rahab, which was the angel of Egypt, protested before God, master of the universe. Why do you exact justice upon the Egyptians, but split the sea for the Jews? They are all guilty before you. They both serve idols. They both have committed sexual wrongs. They have both committed murder. Aren't your ways true and just? At that moment, it was difficult for God to override his sense of justice. So what is this telling us? So I want to let you know something. It says in the Midrash that the Jewish people, when they, were, they walked through the sea, some of them brought idols with them out of Egypt. And actually, it says that the Jewish people were at such a low level, low state, that if they would have been one more moment in Egypt, they would not have been, would have been irredeemable. So the archangel of Egypt turns to God when God's drowning the Egyptians and bringing us through and saying, listen up. If you operate, there's two ways to operate. Either you could operate with kindness, with mercy, or you could operate with justice. So if you can operate with justice, then you have to look at everyone equally. The law is the law. And just like this is wrong for them, it's wrong for the Jews. So if, if the Egyptians deserve such a punishment, the Jews deserve such a punishment. Mercy is when someone, even if someone's undeserving, we're going to override that and we will still give them. So if that's the case, you have to give it to them. And so then don't punish the Egyptians. So now you have this weird, weird paradox going on while the sea is being split. On one hand, God was punishing the Egyptians, which deserved to be punished. But the Jews, which also deserved to be punished, God chose to save them. These are two opposite emotions going on at the same time. And therefore, that was hard for God to do. Which what does hard for God to do mean? What does it mean? I don't, it means, like, it doesn't mean hard I don't want to call this, I'm saying hard. What I mean by hard is it's not a hard as in like, it's difficult for me to lift 200 pounds. It's it's more hard in the sense that like when you have a friend with connections and you want him to do pull off something really, really big and he says, I'll be hard for me to do. doesn't mean it's not physically hard for him. He could do it. It's just about, do I want to do it? So God in gen generally, when God is operating in the world, God operates on one sphere at a time. So here you have God operating on two separate spheres on justice and with mercy at the same time. So this is not the normal way of God operating. And therefore, that was hard for God to do. So just um, 
Um, now, so that is number one. So that's one reason why it was hard for God to split the sea. That is because God was operating on two, the sphere of justice and the sphere of mercy at the same time. So those operating together is, um, the word in Hebrew we say is kvayachol, which means theoretically hard, but it's not, I don't know if that means hard practically, but it's hard for God. But now there is a, another understanding. So we said earlier, we know we discussed the first question. We said this God, the way God relates to the world, and there's, that's the God of our understanding. And then there's God, which is beyond our revelation. Beyond revelation, this is God, the way he is in his essence, which is not, God is in this way is not operating within the spheres of the universe. So that being said, God, the way God makes sure that we don't get to see him the way he actually is, is God created nature, and then God hides beyond behind nature and operates through nature. So, like, if you think about it, nature is constant miracles that God's doing. But God's using nature to make it all look like, oh, that's just happening. God is using that in order for us to have to find him. So you, and Basically, this all comes back to free choice. In order for if God to be revealed, we wouldn't have free choice. So that's how God operates. So there has to be strict laws of nature. And God operates behind those strict laws of nature in order to keep the world going. Now, let's look at the splitting of the sea. Now, now let's look at the splitting of the sea. God overrode both of these ideas. God overrode both of these ideas. Number one, the first idea that God overrode is that the laws of nature were suspended, right? The sea split. That's a suspension of nature. And then the second idea God overrode is that God's presence concealed, it actually says that the lowest, the simple maidservant, what the simple maidservant saw by the splitting of the sea was more was greater than the greatest prophets that we've ever had. Ezekiel was one of our greatest prophets. It's a greater revelation than even he saw. And therefore, it was hard for God to do because... God was not operating within the sphere he usually creates the world. God is tries to keep himself concealed. God revealed himself, and there's no nature. And these two things, you know, a normal miracle is not, you don't see, let's say, let's say um, a great miracle happens. Let's say there's someone who is about to attack the Jewish people. And then a ball of fire comes from the sky and eats him alive. So it's not a revelation of God per se. That's a miracle. But God, we don't, we won't have a better understanding of God based on that idea. But by the splitting of the sea, every single Jew, even the babies, knew exactly who God was. They had a, a, an immense understanding of God through the splitting of the sea. So it was a miracle. Nature was suspended. You have both ideas, both wrongs. Nature was suspended. And you had this amazing revelation. 
Um, so now we have to understand. Great, now we know splitting a C. So now why we have to still understand why finding a match, finding a spouse, and livelihood is difficult. So let's start with livelihood. Um, this is why livelihood is difficult. Imagine the way the world works is that every cause has an effect. So everything we do has a consequence. So the consequence for doing a mitzvah, it says in the Talmud, mitzvah, mitzvah, the consequence of doing a mitzvah, the outcome of doing a mitzvah would be you get to do another mitzvah. And the outcome of you sinning is it makes you want to sin more. It's just a, it's a, it's a track. So now let's say livelihood was all based on our just being. Then what would end up happening is it would be as follows. Let's say Sunday comes right after Shabbat. You have dinner. You'll have a great dinner. On Monday morning, you go to bit, you do business, and let's say you speak bad about someone, or you treat a customer not fairly. Go to your bank account. Your bank's empty. Today we starve. Tuesday, you make sure you make sure um, you make sure not to do any of that. But you weren't perfect, so that day you're eating sardines and crackers for dinner. Then it would come Thursday. Then it would come thir- then it would come Wednesday, Tuesday night. You said something nice to your mother-in-law. So Thursday, Wednesday, you get this. You go to a five-star restaurant. Then comes Thursday. You are rude to the waiter. So back to no food. We'd have a constant. You'll have this constant, this constant back and forth. If livelihood is based on how we acted, um, we would have this constant back and forth. But that's not how livelihood works. A livelihood. Our livelihood is that even it doesn't necessarily on our day-to-day lives how we act god doesn't look at that and he still provides every single person with a livelihood and therefore god is kind of giving limitless blessings into a, limit, a limited world which would again be this paradox of god this is of, of god taking two ideas even though we're in a world which operates with consequences god is not looking into those consequences so that would be livelihood now let's get into matchmaking. So why is this hard like splitting of the sea? So the Maharal, this is the man who made the golem. He says something very, very interesting in text 10 on page 155. It is a tremendous feat to split the, an entity that is intrinsically one, such as the sea, into two distinct parts. It is a similarly spectacular feat to join two entities that are in essence distinct, just as splitting sunders something indivisibly singular. So it is equally challenging to create a unified entity out of entities that are essentially distinct as a man and a woman. This pairing and uniting requires supernatural input. One times one, is supposed to equal one, right? Still, still splitting the C. There's one C, God made it into two. That doesn't make any sense. And that's very hard to do. What's similarly hard to do is you have man. Man lives on their own. We're supposed to have, every human being is supposed to have their own individuality. You're not supposed to, um, you're not supposed to operate 
um, based on a collective. Man is, man is not collective. We are individual. We're supposed to have our own ideas, our own creativity. That's what makes the human race beautiful. Every single person is their own. <clears throat> Animals don't really have individuality. They don't have personality. And then you have like a pack of, and they go in the wild, you see a pack of, pack of elk, a pack of, they all, they all operate the same way. God gave us a brain. God gave us individuality. And then, so you have man has their individuality, then you can break down, and then you bring it down to gender. Man has their individuality in general. Um, and then the woman has their individuality in general. But then through marriage, God takes these two individualities and they become one entity. One plus one equals one. So just, so just like it is hard for God to split the sea. So the opposite's the same way. That husband and wife, all their differences get transcended and they end up being one together. And that is equally hard for God to pull off, so to speak. And therefore, we say that matchmaking is hard like the splitting of the sea. So let's summarize. Is there anything hard for God to do? The answer is, first of all, nothing is difficult for God to do. God created the whole world through speech. However, there are certain things which God calls difficult, which would be acting in two different spheres at the same time, two different ideas at the same time. And that would be splitting the sea, matchmaking, and finding a living. Because those are three things that we have within the confines of creation, which you have this double thing going on, that even though we live in a world of justice, still God acts with mercy both at the same time. And therefore, those are called difficult. All right. Any questions from the Zoom audience? David, is it more difficult from our perception or is it more difficult from his point of view? It's difficult, I would say, from our perception. We call it difficult. Nothing's difficult for God. That's all I was saying earlier. Like the way you could call it difficult is that like usually we live in a world where one thing goes at a time. So you can't have mercy and justice at the same time. You know, a, a, that would be like saying a, a, if a judge would tell someone that let's say someone did a white collar crime and the judge says, you know, you're young, I'm going to have mercy on you and therefore I'm going to give you 25 years in prison. You would laugh at him. You'd say that's mercy. Like this is a crime that only a white collar crime. You know, I the guy the guy defrauded. Let's say the guy took two stimulus checks by COVID. So like like that's not mercy. You know, that's justice. You know, there's justice and there's mercy. You could say that's justice, but that's not mercy. You know, so within our realm of understanding, that would be hard to understand. So I guess that's what we say when we say it's difficult like that, that we'd say it in that way more. Good question. Any other questions in the Zoom? All right. Um, Randy. So in that, let's uh, try to talk louder so they can hear, not that I'm yelling at you, but um, when, when they're, you know, uh, Moses holds up his staff and say, you got to help us. And, and, and God says, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing it because I don't know the exact words, 
He says, why are you asking me? You have the power to do that. So it's not technically God separating the, the sea. It's the individuals doing it because he says you guys have the ability to do that. So we're, I'm just trying to understand what you're what it's trying to say there, what you're trying to say. Like, did the individuals split the sea or did God split the sea? Obviously, God split the sea. The God, it's not obvious to me. He says, You have the power to do it. We have the power, we have the power. God told us to go, just go. So, God is basically telling us, um, to go ahead, and our trust in God is what compelled the sea to split. That broke the boundary. That's again, you like in the back to the first question, you know, the, the video that we saw that, that the part of us and God, which is limitless, could go beyond limitations. So that's the limitless part of God. So when that when man brought that part, man brought about man brought about that revelation of God into the world for the moment. And that's how it happened. But obviously, God split the sea. So we asked God to do stuff for us. And even though he told us we have the power to do it. He wasn't saying that. He was just saying, he was saying, you have the power to bring it out of me. That's what he was saying. Yeah. Okay. All right. Which that leads right to the great question and that leads segues right into our next question. If God has decided to do something, can we change his mind? Yeah, this is a, this is actually a bit of an emotional question. I said it's going to be uh, purely, I said this class purely, um, purely, philosophical so this is kind of emotional because we all pray to god you know let's say heaven forbid someone is sick um which i'm going to mention now um there is a shlucha a revitin from the virgin islands chabad of the virgin islands that she needs a complete recovery and she she's um she almost drowned she's on life support right now and so this will be for her um, if God decided to do something, can we change his mind? We all pray to God for things, but like if God already has a plan, why pray? Right? There's no need to pray. God already made a decision. Why am I praying to God? So let's analyze this. So we all know the story. Um, we all know the story of Bilam. That you know, there's or if those are not said, don't know it. I'm gonna paraphrase quickly. You have Bolak, he is the king of Moab. He tries get he wants to curse the Jewish people in order that they shouldn't attack him. So he gets a prophet, a non-Jewish prophet, his name is Bilam. So Bilam said, I could try, but ultimately I am I am very constrained to whatever God puts in my mouth, I'll be able to say. So Bilam says like this, so in text 11, Bilam spoke in parable and said, Arise, Balak, and hear. Listen to me closely, son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, nor is he mortal. Your mic is um, going in and out again. Nor is he mortal that he should have a change of heart. Would he say and not do, speak and not fulfill? Is that better? No. Um, so we see clearly God does not have a change of heart. But then there is another idea that we sometimes see. That it says, I mean, we know we, it says God created the world. And it says after he created the world, he saw that human beings are evil. 
And it says, God regretted that he made the humans upon the earth. So God does change his mind. We see a similar paradox. There is a, a um, the story of, you know, there was King Saul. God made King Saul. The first king was King Saul. Then God gave King Saul a commandment and he failed to follow through. So God tells the prophet Samuel, listen up, Samuel. I regret making Saul the king. So then Saul go, Samuel goes to Saul and tells him this and says, God regrets making the king and he's going to replace you. So Saul said, what should I do? Can I pray? So Saul, so Samuel says, there's no, cho- there's no chance because God doesn't change his mind, which is kind of a paradox. It's all one sentence. Does God change his mind or not? From one hand, it looks like God doesn't change his mind, but then God does sometimes change his mind. So which one is it? All right. Now that we got um, to the question, let's try to find the answer. So the answer actually, there's something very, very interesting. There is a Rashi. Rashi is the, we I spoke about Shah, the base level of understanding the Torah. So Rashi is the most profound commentary to do so. So Rashi asks a very, very interesting question. The 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 Torah starts at the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So he asks the question, the Torah is not a history book. Why does it start with that? The Torah should start really with the first mitzvah. So Rashi answers, he says something very interesting. He says, it starts with the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth to tell us God created the world. And God gave the land of Israel to the Canaanites. And then God took it away from them. And he tried to give it to the Jews. That we should know that if they say we're on stolen land, you should know it's not true. We're not on stolen land. God first had an initial decision. And that initial decision was followed by subsequent decision in an opposite direction. And just very prophetic because um, God, it says, it doesn't say the nations of Canaan. It says Rashi says the nations, and right now this is a very prominent idea that's found in like in the mainstream news. Unfortunately, that the Jewish people don't be- are standing on stolen land, and we're not. We don't. The land of Israel doesn't belong to us. Um, so therefore, it's very interesting that he says the nations. Just a side note. So this idea, the Torah refers to as regret, um, because what is regret? Regret is when you make a decision and then you have another decision which backtracks your first decision that's the regret so in our understanding that would be regret i mean regret would be that if i decide to give this class and i regret it so i cancel the class that would be me regretting the class right or if i didn't do a good job i would feel bad afterwards i regret giving it it's an it's an opposite feeling in the beginning i wanted to give the class then afterwards an opposite feeling and that's that's what it is but God had the foreknowledge. God knew when he created the world that the people are going to be evil. God knew when he gave the land to the Canaanites that the Jews are going to take it. So to us, it looks like regret. It's referred to as regret because it has all the ideals of regret, but it's not an actual regret. And now there's another way God could change his mind. So Maimonides says something very, very interesting. Maimonides goes through the whole entire Torah, explains all the mitzvahs. So Maimonides gets into the idea of prophecy. And Maimonides says like this. He says that 
how do you know if a prophet's a good prophet? It's a real prophet. You know, if I get up and say, listen up, everyone, I'm a prophet. So now would you believe me? Probably not. What if I say I predict the future? I say tomorrow morning, something's going to happen. So now it depends what I said, if you could prove me a real prophet or not. Let's say I said tomorrow morning, the whole Malibu will be struck by lightning. And will be the whole Malibu will be a complete wasteland. And we all wake up in the morning and everything's good. So that doesn't mean I'm a, I'm a, I'm a false prophet because God will, could go back on something he said negative that's going to happen. When God makes a negative statement that such and such is going to happen, rather than it being a negative statement, it, it would be more of a strongly worded message. God's telling us we need to repent and otherwise there'll be the such and such a punishment. It's a strongly worded message, but within that message, there is in the says if let's say computer program within the coding, within the coding, there is in the code, there is a, we can get around that through whatever listening to God. But let's say I said that people of Malibu, Tomorrow morning, every single one of you will have a bag with a million dollars within your house. So now if that doesn't happen and I claim to be a prophet, I'd be a false prophet because God never goes back on his word and God promises us something. He'll never go back on his word. So does God change his mind? So the answer is God never changes his mind. Sometimes he determines that he will have a change of mind later on. Which to us looks like regret, but God will never have regret because God obviously had a plan. This was part of the plan to begin with. And whenever we do change God's mind, it's that's a, let's say when someone's very sick and it looks like they will, heaven forbid, it's gonna, it's the end. Our prayer could change that because these are all just strongly worded messages from God for us to be able to change it. So now let's watch the video of the, the key points of this lesson. Lesson 5. His Paradoxes 1. According to the Jewish mystics, God, who created logic, is the architect of its constraints. Speaker. Do you guys hear Not it? its prisoner. He can not only do the impossible, but also the unthinkable. Two, God is timeless, and to him, the future is present. His foreknowledge isn't the cause of our choice. It is the outcome of his observation of our choice. Three, the concept of something being difficult or challenging cannot apply to God. Nevertheless, when God simultaneously employs dueling divine forces, that is out of the ordinary and termed difficult. 4. A timeless God who knows all that will transpire in the future can't have a change of heart. Sometimes, however, God determines from the outset that first he will take one course of action and later he'll change course. 5. When God determines to act with kindness, 
No mechanism can change that. From the outset, that is the only possible outcome. However, when God has a thought to act with justice, included in the original thought is always the possibility of changing God's mind and bringing about a kinder result. All right. Um, I hope those, it didn't, I don't know why this, the sound didn't work for us. I hope it worked for the Zoom guys. Um, okay, so next week, what we're going to speak about is um, number one, why can't we see God? Can we reconcile God with science? Why is Judaism so obsessed with idol worship? And lastly, I'm a spiritual person. Why do I need to follow Torah system to have a relationship with God? These questions will be followed by a beautiful conclusion to this course. Um, and thank you so much for joining me tonight. And I'll see you all next week. Thanks, Stephen.